Welcome to episode 12 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Merry Christmas. My apologies for missing last week's show. I was traveling and then I got the brutal cold that's been going around. And then I was traveling with the brutal cold that's been going around. And between the microphones not fitting in my airplane seat and my being unable to talk without sounding like a monster from a 1950s sci-fi movie, the whole thing rather went by the wayside. But I am here now, and I'm excited about this one. Before we get to my guest this week, Mike Rowe, I want to make an appeal to my fellow conservatives to regain some optimism in their outlook. In my Thanksgiving episode... I talked about how grateful I am for America and for the Western world in general. And I meant it. That wasn't boilerplate. I don't feel obliged to say it. I mean it. Now, there are, of course, a lot of problems in the United States right now. I write and talk about them all the time. That's my job. I don't like this president either. I am worried about our unsustainable spending too. I'm worried about our porous border too. I'm worried about the upswing in crime too. If you gave me a drink and asked me to list everything that's wrong with America in 2020, it would take me hours. Even in my best mood, you'll get no Panglossian naivety from me. But, and this is a really important but, there is an enormous gap, a chasm really, between acknowledging those problems and descending into depression, fatalistic thinking and nihilism. This is not an either-or question. It's both. And it always has been. The United States is a wonderful country, worth celebrating. It also has a lot of problems that are deserving of our attention and our care. This was true in 1990. It was true in 1970. It was true in 1950. It's always been true. And it always will be true. There's no heaven on earth even here. I'm worried that conservatives are beginning to forget this. Or at least I'm worried that conservatives are beginning to feel obliged to outdo each other with their cynicism and their consternation and their catastrophization. Look through the op-ed pages of many conservative outlets. Watch conservative TV stations. Read the comments on social media or on politics sites. They're positively eschatological. Quite often now, I hear people on the right falling into the bad habit of assuming that the age in which they live 
is unique and that the problems that they face are uniquely serious. Sometimes this assumption is used as a justification for the bad behavior of political figures. Sometimes it's used as a warning against optimism of any kind. Well, people tell me with increasing frequency, it was fine for Ronald Reagan to be sunny and forward-looking and patriotic, but we don't live in that era anymore. Do you not know what time it is? But this is nonsense. What exactly was so different about Ronald Reagan's time that gave him a hall pass for his confidence? From our vantage point in 2022, we know that he won most of the major battles he fought, but he didn't know that at the time. When Ronald Reagan was elected, inflation was at 14%. Interest rates were in the high double digits. They'd been 19% that summer. A bear market in the stock market had just begun. The economy was stagnant. The Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan, which had massively increased tensions in the Cold War. The Supreme Court was almost completely unmoored from the text of the Constitution, with no dominant originalist movement on the horizon. The murder rate in New York City had just reached its historical high and so on and so forth. If you had told Reagan, or conservatives in general for that matter, that he didn't have to worry, because his era was different, he'd have laughed you off the phone. Politicians need to identify problems. They need to blame the culprits, and they need to promise change. That is, not only... Acceptable, it is necessary. And that requires some doom and gloom. But it's a balancing act, because even when things are bad, even when people believe that the country is on the wrong track, they still like America. Americans are willing to be told that their country has problems. They do not like being told, and for good reason, because it's not true, that their country is unsalvageable, that the system needs throwing out in toto, that nothing at all is good or will be again, that everything has got constantly worse for decades. Conservatives ought to watch this growing tendency because if they fall prey to it, it will devour them. It's also terrible marketing. The United States already has one party that tends in that direction. It does not need two. Now, as an immigrant who believes all the stuff that immigrants are supposed to believe about America, I can tell you I find it unbelievably off-putting to hear that my adopted country is a disaster. I don't want to hear that from the left, and I don't want to hear that from the right. Problems? Yes. Disaster? No. If you haven't seen them yet, I'd urge you to go back and watch the closing TV commercials that were commissioned 
by Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis here in Florida. They're clever because they square this circle nicely. In effect, Rubio and DeSantis said there are problems in America, problems that their opponents would make worse, but that Florida is an awesome place to live and that if America were more like Florida, America would be better for it. You can find these on YouTube. These two commercials. They're patriotic. They're forward-looking. They're upbeat. They're sunny. They didn't say, that's it. It's over. Crash the plane into the mountain. They said there is a better way, and we've done it here. It's no accident that it even the height of the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, not a president I like, chose optimism over acid. He did it because it works. Optimism is ingrained in American culture. People here and people who choose to come here are pre-wired for it. Now, a conservative movement that lacks a blunt, unvarnished respect for the facts would, of course, be pointless. But so would a conservative movement without a healthy gratitude for what is and was and a healthy optimism for what will be. Nihilism does not appeal to people. And worse still, it does nothing at all to address the issues at hand. Nihilism is giving up. It's wallowing, curling into a ball, and waiting for the meteor. That's never a good idea. Yes, even in politics. And my guest this week is Mike Rowe, who you've almost certainly seen on television on the shows Somebody's Gotta Do It and Dirty Jobs. Mike, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Charles C. W. Cook. It's enough to make me want to get some more initials for my own <laughs> moniker, but it is, uh, it's a privilege. Thanks for having me. No, thanks so much for, for coming on. So I wanted to start with something you said last month. Uh, you've said it before, but it got reported widely last month, which is that you think that we are in the United States reaching a crisis as regards work ethic. What do you mean by that, and why do you think it? Well, it's always gratifying when the headlines, or at least some experts, come along to say the thing that you've been you know, howling at the moon at for the last 20 years. But my foundation is called MicroWorks, and as part of what we do there, uh, we have a scholarship program, and specifically, it's a work ethic scholarship program. So... In a nutshell, for the last 15 years, we've been offering work ethic scholarships to people who want to pursue a skill that doesn't require a four-year degree. And uh, we're talking mostly about plumbers, steam fitters, pipe fitters, mechanics, refrigerator, repairmen, and so forth. And um, that's been the drum that I've been beating for a long, long time. And for, for a long time, all my evidence was anecdotal. I was really limited to 
to stories that I had seen firsthand on Dirty Jobs and some other TV shows that I work on, and just relaying the general uh, bemoaning. You know, I'd normally go out and have a beer with the people we feature on those programs, and and almost to a man and to a woman, uh, their chief complaint was always the difficulty in recruiting, finding people who wanted to learn a skill that was in demand, and and more to the point, finding people who were willing to show up early and stay late and just take a bite of the crap sandwich when it came around to them. It was a light motif and a recurring theme that I just couldn't ignore. And so last month, and really, I think it happened before that, an economist you probably know named uh, uh, Eberstadt. Yeah. Nick, he... He wrote a book back in 2016, I think, called Men Without Work. And it was filled with the kind of data that I wish I would have seen when it was first published because it would have bolstered my basic argument. But he reprinted it after the lockdowns. And he's the guy. He's the economist. He's my, he's my source who is saying, look, we've never seen anything like this in peacetime. We've never seen 7 million able-bodied men sitting at home who are not only not working, but affirmatively not looking for work. We've never seen this level of disability, you know, in, in this other column. We've never seen there are a whole lot of things that we've never seen that appear to have come together in a kind of perfect storm. And, and, and I think it all reflects to a kind of diminishment of what passes for the thing that you and I would typically refer to as work ethic. So what do you think has caused this? Is this our government so big that it's sending people money? Is it that we are as a society now so rich that you can live a reasonable lifestyle if you don't work especially hard? Is this mothers and fathers and extended family failing to pass down the chain, the lessons that they learned from their parents? What's the input? It's all of that. But I think it's more, too. I, I, I really think you can almost ask the question, what, what isn't contributing to this kind of collective malaise? And one of the things I come back to a lot is the PR campaign that higher education began to enjoy back in the early and mid-70s and our rush to celebrate higher education and to encourage more people to go that route, we, we did make a pretty persuasive case. But as with most PR, we, we got over our skis and we went way too far. And so we started promoting the benefits of a four-year degree, not on their merits, but at the expense of every other form of education and really every other form of work. And so uh, trade schools and community colleges and two-year degrees and apprenticeships and virtually every other form of education became subordinate to the four-year degree. And when that happened, we, we started looking at a lot of jobs, not as opportunities, but as cautionary tales. If you don't get your degree, you're going to wind up turning a wrench. You're going to wind up doing this. You're going to wind up doing that. And so it was those portrayals that really started, in my view anyway, to, to take root. And the unintended consequences of those portrayals have led to stigmas and stereotypes and all kinds of myths and misperceptions 
that dissuade parents and guidance counselors and a lot of otherwise intelligent people from making a persuasive case for the trades. And, you know, I, I think that you can draw a straight line from that to the cost of college, to $1.7 trillion in student loans on the books, to 11 million open positions, most of which, ironically and paradoxically, don't require a four-year degree. And you can also talk about shop class. When we took shop class out of high school, it was a value judgment. And I, you know, if, if you're a kid trying to figure out what's aspirational, if you're, if you're looking around for visual cues and clues, there's not much more persuasive a thing you can do than to simply remove, you know, we just removed all vestiges of those kinds of jobs from sight. And so wood shop and metal shop and auto shop and all those things just, just vanished. So, you know, I think today when you talk about a skills gap and when you talk about the incredible number of opportunities out there that people simply aren't interested in, and when you look at all the student debt, you know, you can push all that into a pile and then you can bring it back to work ethic because that, that's a part of it too. And that's the part of it that seems to be moving the fastest. And I guess, Charles, uh, I'm sorry, that's a long way of saying I don't really know precisely what's driven it. But I do know that, to your point, the consequences of sitting home and doing nothing are not nearly as dire as they used to be. See, I think, I, I think you're onto something here, because I, I think that the consequences of hiding other jobs, and I would say of disparaging other jobs, are potentially disastrous socially. Leave aside the question of work ethic, leave aside the question of a skills gap. I, I have this profound fear that we're creating or trying to create a two-tier society in the United States that is based more around whether or not a person has the correct credentials <laughs> than whether they do good or meaningful work. You know, I noticed this trend when I lived in England, when the Prime Minister 15, 20 years ago, Tony Blair, said with no real prompting, that 50% of British people should go to university, but couldn't explain why. <laughs> you know, I think in his mind, he saw, which was correct, when 5% of people went to university, that if you went to university, you on average did better than those who didn't. But of course, that doesn't scale infinitely. And this tendency has crept in, in the United States too. The idea college is for everyone, that it's outrageous if people have to pay for it, that... Mm -hmm. Uh, more skills should be taught as college courses, that more jobs should require college degrees. And you know, what really bothers me about that, as a college graduate myself, is that it's entirely one-tracked. It's only ever applied to college. Yeah. And there's no limits that are put on it. And you, know, you mentioned student loans. We just saw President Biden try to cancel student loans. I think it was flatly illegal. But leaving aside, I also thought it was grotesquely immoral and I had this idea that I would share with people of twins, you know, two boys, they grow up, one goes to college, and the other says that's not for me. And instead, he does an apprenticeship, he buys a Ford F-150 and some tools, and he starts his own business. Let's say he's a roofer or a plumber, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then one day, the president of the United States says, your brother gets ten to $20,000 
cash <laughs> subsidized by the taxpayers writ large, and you get nothing. Right. Why? Because we don't look at a degree as a tool, but we should. Right. A degree is a tool. A truck is a tool. A jackhammer is also a tool. And these tools can all be used to uh, improve the speed with which the craftsman can fashion his or her thing. A degree, and really almost any other form of uh, credentialing or accreditation, has this other word that usually accompanies it, which is an investment. Right? You're making an investment in yourself, and therefore, the argument goes, society should help subsidize that investment because it will bring dividends back to the collective whole. But the truth is, if that's accurate, how is it any less accurate for the F-150? Right. It, 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 it really comes down to the most heavy-handed value judgment you can imagine. And I work pretty hard to try and stay in my, in my lane. <laughs> I'm not sure what my lane is anymore, but, but it's very difficult to talk about things like a skills gap without talking about education. And you can't talk about education without student loans. And it, it all just becomes this, this giant thing. And you know, I said to you before we started recording, I, I find myself in violent agreement with just about everything you've written. In fact, that, that trope you just described is a meme with me in it that came out a few years ago <laughs> after a con conversation with John Stossel. I mean, it, 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 when I talk to my friends on Dirty Jobs, when I talk to the people I've profiled on shows like Somebody's Got to Do It and Returning the Favor and, and graduates of my own foundation, we have over 1,500 people who have gone through MicroWorks who have learned a skill. Half of those people, Charles, are welders. And half of those are making in excess of six figures a year. Many of them barely made it through high school, but they're prospering, damn it. You know? And a lot of them, and I, I, I don't know that if you've written about this either, but this is a, a woefully underreported trajectory. I've got people who have gone through our program who I, I, I gave $6,000 to. And they got a welding certificate. And now five years later, we check back. They have three vans. They've hired eight or nine people. There's an electrician. There's a plumber. There's a HVAC guy. There's a drywaller. There's a mechanical contracting business where there wasn't one. And there are a dozen jobs that exist that weren't there before. And it started with the willingness of a guy to master a skill that was in demand. These stories are everywhere, but we don't tell them. And when we do tell them, we don't tell them well. We say, look, here's a story of what a guy did who wasn't cut out for college, and so forth and so on. So yes, a thousand times, yes. We're trying for reasons I don't quite understand to create a two-tier system. And it's insane because a healthy workforce is, it's two sides of the same coin. It makes no sense to put a higher premium on heads than tails. It's a coin. And uh, 
yeah, we've got our thumb on the scale and it's going to come back to bite us in the ass, I'm afraid. And I think you raise a really interesting point here, which is that many of the conceits that we're discussing here, they just aren't true. It's not just that they're snobby or myopic. It's that they aren't true. And I, I knew this firsthand because my dad didn't go to college. I'm the first man in my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. And the way that people would talk about college graduates often implied that I was in some way more accomplished or better than he is. And of course, this is nonsense. He left school at, I think, 17. He joined the Air Force. Then he started his own business. We just did different things. It doesn't say much about us. Many of the people I know who didn't go to college uh, make a lot of, of money, a lot more money than the people who did go. And this idea that you hear a little bit in politics that college-educated voters, they're more informed, I actually don't think it's always true. So you've got this, uh, this set of ideas that is percolating and is reinforced at every level that is often completely false. Mm-hmm. And in a free country, you know, in a country in which not everyone should do the same thing, I think that's a real problem. Um, <laughs> And one of the questions that I often ask people who went to college is whether they have ever watched a, a tradesman work. Yeah. You know, and I want to move this on to dirty jobs for a moment because the artistry that you see, if you do stop and watch, is remarkable. And often people, you know, put up their hand and say, yes, I do watch. And I say, no, I don't mean that you were on the phone making coffee, wandering around the house while the plumber was there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you actually watch them? Yeah. Did you actually watch the guys building the house next door? Yeah. Did you actually watch the people who managed to completely replace your HVAC system without destroying your ceiling? Right. And the answer is very often no. But for 20 years, uh, you've had a show that shows that and a lot uh, heavier and, and dirtier jobs too. Um, what led you to do that in the first place? I mean, the world was different 20 years ago than it is now, but you clearly noticed this needed doing then. Why? Well, it's not that clear, Charles. Thank you. I mean, I, I would love to look back and tell you that, you know, my my prescience uh, required me <laughs> to take action. Um, okay. What, what really happened was I, I lived next door uh, to, a, to a magician named Carl Noble, who happened to be my, my grandfather. He wasn't really a magician, but that's how I saw him as a uh-huh. boy. He could build or fix or repair anything. You know, he could take your watch off and blindfold and put it back together again. He, he actually built the house I was born in without a blueprint, and it's, it's still standing. He went to the seventh grade, and today he would be invisible. When I was a boy, he was heroic to the neighbors and to anyone who knew him. He was Carl Noble. He could build or fix anything. And so when I was uh, 42, I was, I'd been freelancing in TV for a long time and impersonating a host for some show on CBS when my mother called to say, Michael, your, your grandfather just turned 90. You know, he's not going to be around forever. Wouldn't it be great, she said, if, he, uh, if before he died, he could turn on the TV and see you doing something that looked like work? and you know for what it's worth i i wanted to follow in my pop's footsteps the handy gene tragically is somewhat recessive what came easily to him did not come easily to me he's the guy who encouraged me to get a different toolbox 
he's the guy who encouraged me to go to a community college and start pursuing things that I wasn't necessarily interested in. He was the guy who told me that just because you love something doesn't mean you can't suck at it. And conversely, just because you, uh, you don't dream of something doesn't mean you might not have some sort of facility for it. And so he was hugely influential in my life. My mom challenged me to do something that looked like work. I took a cameraman into the sewers of San Francisco and profiled a sewer inspector. And the minute I put that on TV, this was 2001, uh, I was overwhelmed with feedback. And not all of it was positive. And, and the complimentary stuff really wasn't about me. I got a ton of letters from people who said, you think that was dirty? You think that was hard? Where do you meet my dad? my brother, my cousin, my uncle, my sister, my mom, where do you see what they do? And that's really when it occurred to me that we weren't doing a very good job of portraying work as most of us remember it. There weren't very many honest shows. In fact, there was no reality TV back then. I think there was Survivor and maybe um, American Chopper or something like that. So this was a a radically different idea. Dirty Jobs, a very honest show. We don't do second takes. We don't do any pre-production, certainly no writing, no actors, none of that. And so what started to go on the air were honest, fly-on-the-wall looks at lots of different vocations that most people typically went out of their way to ignore. And it struck a chord. And people you know, began to program the show for me. Most of the ideas on that show were suggested by viewers. That show, Charles, has been on the air every week for 20 years. Hmm. It's still in production, believe it or not. And so, you know, I don't say that to, to pat myself on the back. I say it because, to your point and to your question, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it, I think it might have been on Tucker, videos were making the rounds. People at Twitter and Facebook were, were making videos of their day on the job. And they were like right in your face, right? Like, this is my job. You know, we start with a five course breakfast on campus. We have a, a, a meditation room, a relaxation booth. They just, I mean, God bless them, but they were celebrations of, of work going on here in 2022 that didn't look anything like work, <laughs> in my view. And so that uh, that's a long way to say, I think the reason Dirty Jobs is still on the air and the reason it launched about 30 other like-minded shows is because a lot of people do want to be reminded of what work looks like. And I think, I think our country is in a, a state where, where we need to be reminded of it. We need, we need to see not just the HVAC guy you described doing a good job, we need to understand what kind of living he's making and what kind of life he's living. We need to see the balance in all of that. Final thought. I know I'm filibustering here, but you talked yeah, about at all. Well, you talked about art. And this goes back to my pop, and it goes back to another one of the reasons I think Dirty Jobs still works. When we took shop class out of high school, it, we didn't just flip a switch. You know, back in the day, Shop was called the vocational arts. And 
the first thing we did was was not with the courses themselves. It was with the language. We took the art out of it, and it just became Votech. And of course, once you hyphenate something, that's the kiss of death. Votech just became some other acronym I've forgotten, and that eventually turned into shop. And then we walked shop outside behind the barn and shot it in the head. <laughs> and then it was gone. But my point is, it started with the removal of art. And when you, when you arbitrage the art out of the work, then you're just left with the brute routines of following the directions. And then you're adjacent to something that feels a lot like drudgery. And then the stigmas and the stereotypes start to arise. And then you have a whole generation of parents saying, I, I don't want my kid doing that. I can't blame them. I understand it. But so much of everything we're talking about is a result of bad PR. Bad PR in a heavy-handed way for higher ed and bad PR in a lazy way for all the other opportunities that are out there. I hate to say it, but the, the way we talk about all of this and the examples that we put forth, they really matter. And historically, we've done a pretty bad job of it, even dirty jobs. I mean, look, it's, a, it's an entertainment show first and foremost, but if you peel back the layer underneath the exploding toilets and the misadventures and animal husbandry, it really was and still is a rumination on the definition of a good job. And that's what we need to do. You know, we can't control a long list of stuff, but we can control the jobs we decide are aspirational. So are you hopeful that we will? Because the PR campaign that you mentioned that started in the 1970s is, if anything, stronger now. The stigmas that you've decried are, if anything, stronger now. There is a remarkable amount of money sloshing around. We just saw an attempt to wipe some of it away, or rather put it on the backs of those who didn't spend it, not because we're interested in reform, not because Congress was working on a bill to change the way that we run colleges in the United States, but just because, yeah. to prop up a system, not to change it. You've been doing dirty jobs for 20 years. Do you think that there is a chance that from the demand side rather than the supply side, people are going to wake up and say, well, college can be good for some people. And I hope my listeners will not misunderstand me here. It absolutely can. It was for me. Oh, I'm, me too. I'm good friends with a doctor. <laughs> he, yeah. he needed to go to college. Um, but it's not for everyone. And I think, especially given the high prices, there must be some movement. But do, do you think it's going to be minimal? Do you think we're going to see a sea change? Do you feel as if... Um, yes. You do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. I'll tell you why. It's I mean, it's bad news and good news as well, but it I'm afraid things need to go uh splat. Right? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what splat means, but I think in this case, the sea change that you're talking about, we have to get out of the employer employee conversation. It can't be binary. There's a, there's such a tendency to look at workforce and a skills gap, which, by the way, I, I'm not. Sh my thinking has evolved on the skills gap. I I don't know that the. I used to think that it was a lack of skill that was keeping 
large chunks of people out of the workforce and making it difficult for big companies to effectively hire. I don't believe that anymore. I think it's a lack of skill is subordinate to a lack of will. I think it's a will gap, right? And that's much more of a of a PR thing. But my larger point is it, the conversation can't be exclusive to employer versus employee or labor versus management or union versus right to work or all of the other, you know, binary this versus that. We have to get the rest of the country involved. And the only way that's going to happen is when we start asking questions like, not do you want your kid to be a plumber? That's in the first category. We need to start asking questions like, how long do you want to wait for a plumber? Mm-hmm. How, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny we're talking about this. Uh, an hour ago, a refrigerator repairman left my house. I ordered a new refrigerator 20 months ago. Wow. 20 months. Never mind the supply chain issues. The thing showed up a couple months ago, but it needed panels. And then it needed handles. And everything is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then they finally all got it together. And it was another month before a guy could actually come out and help me put this thing together. Um, I talked to him for the better part of an hour while he was working. Anecdotal sidebar, forgive me, but he's uh, uh, 31 years old. He has two kids and he's making 130 grand a year. Now, he's a refrigerator repairman. He works 70 hours a week. So this is probably a better answer to your earlier question, but that guy needs to be on a poster, a billboard. That guy is aspirational in, in so many ways that we just don't care about. But to your point, if we don't, when we get the country at large interested in the, in the amount of time they're willing to wait for the electrician, the steam fitter, the welder, their car, the technician, right? When that's what it's going to take to get people to really think, wait a second, are, are we rewarding a long list of behavior we, we really don't want to encourage? You know, have we really overeducated, over-credentialed so, so much of our workforce that we're so out of balance now that we can't get the, the essential things we need? I think the bad news is we're heading in that direction and it's going to hurt. The good news is when we get there, I believe there's going to be a reckoning, maybe even an awakening. And then I would suggest that, you know, you've, you've been all around the world. You, I mean, work is thought of differently in Switzerland. It's thought of differently in Germany. The guild system is, a, is another way to think about things. I don't know if you've been to South Korea, but when you're in Seoul, you go to a cocktail party in Seoul and you learn that such and such has a, has a kid who's studying to be an accountant in, in a school, the default reaction in the average person is, oh, gosh, that's, that's too bad. So he can't build anything? He can't make anything? <laughs> <laughs> it's completely backwards, right? And I'm not saying it's it, – I, I don't think it's good to be too far on, on either extreme. Right, right. But the fact is we can decide. We can steer that conversation into a more balanced place, but we'll never do it with politicians making cookie cutter 
proclamations and pronouncements. And unfortunately, that's all politicians can do. They've got to aim for the fat part of the bat. They can't say college is good. They have to say college is so good, everyone needs to go. Right. And, and if they don't go, then something is systemically broken. Something is unfair. Something is out of whack. Because the best path for the most people is this path, which is perversely the most expensive path. But you think that around the edges of society, and then increasingly towards the middle, people are going to bypass all that rhetoric, and they're going to make rational decisions based on how long it takes to get a plumber, and which jobs are available to them, and so on. Not even rational. Uh, I mean, certainly rational, but it's 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 going to be selfish, like all good things. There, you know, we're we're going to have to look at our the the way I like to say it is, I am uh, I'm addicted, right? I I have a full on addiction to smooth roads, affordable energy, indoor plumbing, <laughs> reliable electricity. Right? I we are addicted to all of these things. To the point when we're denied them, and, and, and only when we're denied them, right? It's only when the lights don't come on after yeah. we flick the switch. It's only when the crap doesn't go down the toilet after we flush it that our, that our outrage metastasizes. And isn't it interesting? I'm not a shrink, but isn't it interesting how fast we wind up resenting the very things we depend upon? I don't know why this is true, and I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but it's certainly true of me. You know, when I find myself, it's not just the two or three day wait for the plumber that's vexing, it's the reality that I can't do the thing that needs to be done. I am dependent on this group of people to show up and to help me and to keep my civilized life on the rails. And, and part of the reason I depend on them is because I don't possess the skill that they have. And so it's a, it's a weird thing. It's the fault in our stars, the way we go from, gosh, I need your help, to what do you mean I can't get your help, to I hate you for not being yeah. here. <laughs> so we end up resenting them because we need them. Correct. Oh, it's, it's we We, I mean... Anybody who's ever been stuck in traffic because of construction has looked at the guys doing the construction as, you, as they drive past finally at three miles an hour and shake their heads and say things like, what's taking so long? Why'd you have to do this during rush hour? What the hell is going on? What's the matter? Why are you, right? We, we shake our fist at the linemen who are up there trying to get our power back on because here in Northern California, you know, our power might be off for four or five days. We wind up getting pissed off at the very people who can save us because we can't do it ourselves. So, look, it's a lot. It, this whole conversation is enormous and it touches on a lot of different things, but we have to have it because I don't want to wait a week for a plumber. I don't know anyone who does. I have a final question and then I'll let you go. As you were speaking, I was thinking that... Obviously, throughout history, there have been things that the average person can't do. There's been specialized skills and so on. But 
as we've got richer as a society, the number of things that the average person can't do, and is rational not to learn, perhaps, has grown. And you mm. mentioned your grandfather. And my grandfathers, both of them, um, were extremely handy. One of them was a carpenter. The other one could repair pretty much anything. In fact, he had this hilariously detailed garage <laughs> in... Uh, in Wiltshire, in England, where every single screw was put in a little drawer with a <laughs> note on it, so they were organized, you know, by diameter and length and so sure. on. Sure. I wonder to what extent that has informed this as well, that if you lived on the prairie in 1880, you had to be able to build a fence. Yeah. It wasn't really a choice, was it? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it, this is a good place to land the plane because it goes back to your concern with credentialing. We have entered into what I think is the age of speciality, the age of the specialist, right? And, and this is not a terrible thing. If you, if you need a new kidney, I would love to have somebody who, you know, is really focused on the whole kidney thing. And when I look up on the wall to see that they graduated from, you know, a, a fine medical school, that makes me feel good. And I'd, I'd like to know what they do, right? Uh, especially if I need it done. Um, but, but the specialist is, is still in the minority, at least they should be. I don't think they are anymore. And that's to your point. If the, if, if what we're looking at is, is the rise of the specialist, then that does correlate with the rise of the credentials, but the mirror image is the decline of the generalist. It's the decline of the general contractor. It's the decline of the Renaissance man or woman. And so, yeah, that, that is a, uh, that's a thing to really think about. You know, I, I did a campaign a few years ago for a, you know, a, a big services company. And the, the theme that I pitched them was, <laughs> really, now that I think about it, uh, to my shame, was a specialist theme. And the tagline was, I got a guy for that. Right, I got a furnace guy, I got a lighting guy, I got an oven guy, I got a refrigerator guy, I got an accountant guy. I got this, this, this you know. There's a guy for that, and I think that um, I think that's a relatively new way to think about workforce. And it, to your point, you know, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I think you're right. It's uh, we're better as generalists. That's why farmers you know, were such a huge part of dirty jobs. A farmer today is a real estate manager. He's a weatherman. He can, he can dig a ditch. He can run pipe. He can run electricity. He can deliver a calf. Cesarean, if need be. He's a veterinarian. He's <laughs> Farmers, I think, are among the last great generalists of our time. And, um, we could probably learn a thing or two from them. Yeah, if you grow up on a farm and someone says, well, who's going to fix that? You think, uh, me? That, that'd be me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got All a guy right. for that. He's me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, I imagine uh, almost everyone listening will know who you are and where to find you. But just on the off chance, Mike, that they hmm. don't, where can they find you? Where can they find <laughs> your TV show? Oh, God, this is obnoxious. I mean, Dirty Jobs is back. Um, Discovery. Sunday nights at eight. It never really went away. 
Um, the story behind the story is my podcast brought to life on TBN. There's a podcast called The Way I Heard It. There's another show called How America Works on Fox Business, God help me. Um, <laughs> there's a line of whiskey named after my pop, Carl Noble. It's delicious. Oh, I didn't know that bit. Well, yeah. I'm glad I asked the question now. Yeah, it just popped up. And look, the, the only thing that really matters, honestly, uh, is the foundation. It's, the, it's become the, the little sun in my solar system. It impacts everything I do. We give away two million bucks a year in work ethic scholarships. We'll be doing it again next month. And if uh, if your listeners have relatives or if they themselves want to learn a skill that's in demand, apply at microworks.org. Got to jump through some hoops, but it's relatively simple. And um, the money's burning a hole in my pocket. I've raised more than I can uh, responsibly give away at this point. So please apply. All right, fantastic. Micro, thank you so much for coming on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. I'll look forward to you returning the favor on my humble little podcast uh, sometime absolutely. in the new year. Absolutely. It's a deal. Done. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic Christmas. Thank you so much for sticking with this podcast. We've done 12 episodes now, and I really appreciate how fast it's grown, how many of you have emailed me about it i even had one guy stop me outside of a pizza restaurant and say are you charles cw cook of the charles cw cook podcast i said no he's much less handsome